um, the historical setting of the psalm is the tent. This could be a reference to the tent that David erected on Mount Zion in Jerusalem to house the Ark of the Covenant until the temple was built. That's one of the things. It could also be a reference to Moses and the giving of the law, where in Exodus 33, Moses and the tent, which if you're a word freak like me, um, I can find a word in Scripture and get way off on just that word and go looking for that word everywhere in Scripture just to see its significance. And obviously the tent was a place of dwelling in Bible times for most people that were nomadic. Not, not in the cities, but those that, those that had flocks or whatever had tents. And remember that it was a tent that God dwelt in when, they were, when the children of Israel were roaming around in the desert. So the tent is a very interesting thing, and I encourage you to follow that word through Scripture to see its significance and what it is. But the tent of meeting is probably my favorite tent in Scripture because that is where, actually, that we see that in Exodus 33 there in verse 11, that the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face in the tent. Now, I would love to have been Joshua at that point. Not later. I wouldn't want to be Joshua later. But Joshua got to hang out in that tent after Moses left. And I just wonder, after God's presence was in that tent, what was that like to be in that tent after God had been there? I'm going to ask Joshua when I get to heaven. But that was the tent of meeting. And that's where Moses would hand out all of his judgments. And that's where God met with with Moses. Now, so it could be a reference. David could be making a reference in this psalm to that tent because he would know about this. The holy hill. When David asked the question, who may reside on your holy hill? It is a psalm of David. That's the who. Wait, did I jump too far? Oh, it's the way. This did this. It's David that wrote the psalm because he tells us that in that first verse right there, a psalm of David. And when he talks about the tent and being on the hill, so David was a student of scripture. So he would know this. He would he would be fully aware, having read the the book of Moses, Exodus, Leviticus. He would have been fully aware of that tent of meeting. The when of this chapter has to be, I would say, though scholars aren't, don't really come out and say, but I would say it would have to be pre-Bathsheba. <clears throat> because when you read this psalm and the exuberance in this psalm and what's laid out, it's someone who is well acquainted with the law of God and what it takes to commune with God, and to dwell in the tent and live on the, on, on the hill. So I would say that it was probably a younger David, very exuberant, before Samuel 11, chapter 11, and, uh, and the Bathsheba incident. So the question that David asks is, Who may reside in your tent, O Lord? Who may settle on your holy hill? And again, Hill is also a very interesting word in Scripture, 
I encourage you to chase that word through Scripture as well, because it's just very interesting. The things that happen on hills. Of course, there's things that happen in valleys, but hills are, hills are more interesting to me. <clears throat> so David, as I said, would be well acquainted with Scripture and the law. And so probably maybe even having committed some of the law to memory. And this portion of Scripture in Leviticus 19, 9 and 18 is almost the text from which David writes Psalm 15. Because what we're going to find in Psalm 15 is inculcated in what was given by God to his people in Leviticus right here. Because if you read this, you, you go down through and God tells his people, this is how you are going to behave, his people to behave. Not like the other nations around them. And I threw this in, Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. I threw this in. If you lend money to people, to the poor among you, you don't charge interest because we're going to see that in Psalm 15 as well. <clears throat> so I would say that this was, David is writing in Psalm 15, not necessarily paraphrasing, but in his own words, what he has learned from the law and what it meant to him. Because we're going to find this here. What's interesting is, we're going to find it, David reiterating that in Psalm 15. But nothing changes on this side of the cross in terms of how God expects his people to behave. Because if you read Ephesians chapter 4, and this section of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's admonition to us, well, it's very much like Leviticus. It's very much like Psalm 15. Because this is how we're supposed to behave. So God's expectations for how his people should behave and how they should interact with other human beings hasn't changed at all. Which is also another encouragement to us is that God's expectations and God's word does not change. Now, in the law, God laid all this stuff out and he said, this is how I want you to behave because he knew if they were left to themselves, they would not behave like that, right? And what does happen, what, what does happen, even though God gives the law, and, he, and I think it's pretty simple, how he, when he lays it out in Leviticus, and when David reiterates on it, it's simple, it's not complicated. But yet, Israel and God's people are going to struggle, not so much with knowing what it said and memorizing what it said, but actually doing and living what it said. That, that's going to be their problem. So, who is that one who can dwell in the tent of the Lord and reside on his hill? It's the one who walks in integrity. What, what is someone who walks in integrity? Integrity has to do with, mm, let's say, the fiber of what you are. All the way through. Not on the surface, but all the way through. That in your dealings with people, you have the integrity 
Not just that you're honest, but that you also are not changing. You are who you are. And you're that all the way through. You're not this way with these people and a different way with these people. There's an integrity. There's a continuity. And so that's what David is saying here. There's, that person is the one who walks with integrity. And a person of integrity, can you count on that person? Absolutely, right? It's the person who doesn't have integrity that you can't count on. It's the person without integrity you don't want to have any business dealings with, right? David's shaking his head. Yes, he knows that in business, don't we, Dave? But it's great when you find a man of integrity or a woman of integrity because you know you can trust them. If they say something and that they're going to do it, they will do it. The one who practices righteousness. The one who practices righteousness. That's just, that's living right. The one who practices living right. But more to the point, and in, David, in the context of what David is saying, is that we're living right according to what God has told us is right. That's the righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but the righteousness that God has outlined, that God has declared. Because you can consider yourself righteous and not be righteous at all. Because if you're the one who's written up your rules of righteousness, then you meet them all. It doesn't matter if you fall short of God's righteous rules, right? So the one who practices righteousness, it's, a, it's an active thing. It's not just something that you sit there and you are, but you practice righteousness. That one who can dwell in the tent of the Lord is the one who speaks truth in his heart. Now, what do you think that means, speaks truth in his heart? Well, it can also mean speaks truth from his heart, but it's also, are you very truthful with yourself? Because you know the games that we play and that sometimes we don't speak truth in our heart to ourselves. We will tell ourselves, oh, it's okay. Well, yeah, that probably wasn't quite right. But you know what? It's It's okay. We're not speaking truth to our heart because if we're going to deal with true truth, where does true truth come from? Where? The Word of God. That's where the true truth is. So if we're not speaking true truth to our heart, then we're not going to be speaking truth from, true truth from our heart when we deal with other individuals. So this one who can dwell in the tent of the Lord is one who speaks the truth not only to himself but to others, but that it is the true truth, that is the truth of Scripture, God's truth. And and we all know that that sometimes is a challenge for us because we like to tell ourselves things that sound good, and they're not necessarily good. The person who can dwell there is one who has no slandering tongue. Who has never, ever in your whole life slandered anyone? Yeah, nobody can... I can't raise my hand. Because we actually do this more frequently than we think. Because it's not, 
It's not slander when you say something to someone's face. It's when you say something about someone that may or may not be true when they're not around. And whether it's true, what makes it slander? It's the attitude of the heart and the context of your conversation, right? And we certainly like to make people our same size, right? We like to take them out at the knees so they're not taller than us, right? So this person does not have a slandering tongue. I'm going to go out on the limb here just a little bit. This applies to every area of our life, including, get ready, politics. It does. Because it's not just our tongue that God is interested in taming, it's our heart. Because that's where our tongue gets its words from. And I know, I know politics are messy, and there are some people that do some really, very intelligent people that do really stupid things. But somehow in our culture, even within our culture and our Christian culture, it's become okay to slander politicians. They're open game, and we can say whatever we want about them. But I can't find anywhere in Scripture I've looked, and there is no clause that lets politicians be slandered. So, just a word to us in this next year. We should really guard our tongues. Because slander is, rolls off our tongues easier than we think. Does no evil to his neighbor. Have you ever done evil to your neighbor? Maybe not intentionally. Evil, that's a pretty big word, right? It's a pretty nasty word, evil. I wouldn't do anything evil to my neighbor. And I would think that most of us have not. But if you have done anything that was conniving to whatever the dispute was, where he set his trash cans or his leaves and stuff falling in your yard or something, and you've done anything devious, that, that's being evil. Because it's the intent of our heart. But it's not just the person that lives next door to you. This is anybody that you have dealings with. That we are not devious. We're not evil in our thoughts and actions towards other people. See how this, this, this 15 verses that David wrote covers almost everything that we deal with, right? Brings no shame on his friends. Have you ever brought shame on your friends? Now, I've done some pretty dumb and embarrassing things with my friends around when I was younger. Let me, let me just clarify that. When I was younger, but not necessarily shame. Shame is what happens when your friends aren't just embarrassed about you, but when they don't want to be your friend anymore. I don't know, social media has made it really easy to unfriend people and unfollow people, but it's not the same. I mean, just because you made a comment about 
someone's post of a picture or something doesn't mean you shamed them. But shaming a friend is when that friend ceases their relationship. You've shamed them somehow. Not necessarily embarrassed them, but something you said or did brought shame to them. And maybe it was just an innocent little statement that started a cascading effect that it got to this person and then this person and then this happened and when your friend became the brunt of it or the recipient of it, you shamed them by what you had said or done over here. You see, there really aren't any casual words or actions in our life, even though we tell ourselves that. What's he getting so upset for? It was just a casual remark. It wasn't so casual if that person is upset, right? So this person does not bring shame on his friends. And this is a very interesting thing that David would, would write this out of the law in this particular method. Despises despicable people. Now that doesn't mean that, that you're an enemy to every sinner walking the planet. It just means that you despise, in your heart, you despise the despicable people. The truly evil people in the world. The truly evil people in the world that are dragging other souls to hell. But it's not that we despise people to the point that we don't have compassion and love for their souls. See, it, it, it's a little bit of a tightrope. It's, it's a little bit of, if you think about it, there are those that are very despicable, but it's not our determination as to whether God can save that despicable person because they're so despicable. But that is the attitude that we do not agree with that despicable person's actions or attitudes. But if anything, with our kids, especially, that our kids understand that while we love the sinner, we are distraught over the despicableness of that person's actions or attitudes. So it's kind of a, it, it's a little bit of a tension that we, that we befriend sinners, that we talk to that drug addict, that we talk to even that drug dealer or that prostitute on the street. Because how else will they hear the word? It was not below Jesus to do that. But yet Jesus was quick to call out anybody, especially the phony righteousness of the religious leaders of the day, and to call them out and call them despicable. Honors those who fear the Lord. So you, you despise despicable people. You don't, you don't ever let anybody, you, in no one's presence do you ever praise a despicable person, but you honor those who fear the Lord. You honor them. So let's see. If we honor those who fear the Lord, who, who are they who fear the Lord? Do, do you fear the Lord? You fear the, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear? Then I should honor you. So, so what this is saying is, I need to honor my brothers and sisters because you fear the Lord. I need to honor you. I need to hold you in high esteem, which is what Paul tells us in Ephesians, to hold one another in high esteem. 
honors those who fear the Lord. I need to honor you, hold you in high esteem. This is a hard one. This is a hard one. Takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. Have you ever made a promise to do something and it cost you big time? It cost you time. It even cost you money. It cost you headache. It took a couple of years off your life. But you did it because you said you would do it. You gave someone your word. Now, I've had plenty of people make a promise, swear an oath, not not swear an oath, but make a promise that they would, they gave their word, they would do this. Ah, sorry, Kim, I can't do that. I just, a lot of stuff going on, I just can't do it. Uh, Dude, I I was counting on you to do that, because if you don't do that, then that means I have to do this and this and this, and then this isn't going to get done. Yeah, sorry, man. I had to do, I had to do that more than once when I was in business for myself, trying, trying to be in business for myself in the construction trade, and I would sign a contract. And things didn't turn out like you thought. And it was a gray area or something. Or, you should, or I should have known that. And how many hours I put in to make it right. But I had to because I had given my word. I had signed my name on a contract. And the last one that did me in in, in business was... That guy was actually very devious. And, uh, and that... And that I paid a big price for that, but I did everything that I had said I would do. And it cost me. It's too easy to go, yeah, you know what? That guy's all, he's messed up. I'm out of here. I'm not doing that. But then the next time, what is my word worth? The next time I sign a document, I put my name on it and say, I'm going to do this, then what's that worth? Well, it's pretty easy the next time to go, well, I did it the last time because, well, this is worse than that, so now I'm out of here. That's hard. But I also learned that from my dad. I learned that from my dad. He doesn't lend his money at interest. This is this harkens to the Lord Jesus Christ when he told his disciples, Well, don't lend things at all. If somebody asks to borrow something, don't lend it to them. What did he say? Just give it to him. Not expecting to get it back. Just give it to him. It's just an earthly possession. And believe me, earthly possessions, if you live long enough, earthly possessions only weigh you down, get in the way, and you leave them for your kids to have to deal with. This I'm experiencing right now in the flesh and in real life. And I'll tell you what, I am getting ready to give stuff to people. You want to borrow this? You can have it. I'm just ready to give it all away. But this person, that's, that's our mentality, and that's the frame of our heart, is that, oh, sure, do you need this? Sure. Oh, you brought it back? Oh, okay, fine. I'll let the next person use it. God's people were real good at making money. 
And no matter where God's people have been spread all over the face of this earth, they have a knack for making money. It's like God knew it, and so he constantly had to tell them in his law, don't do this, don't forget the orphan, don't forget the, the widow, don't lend money at interest, because he knew. They take advantage of themselves. So the, the concept here is that we, we have a giving heart. If someone needs something, we respond to the need. Doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. And that's kind of an interesting thing because we don't, our, our social system and our, our legal system, you don't really see this here in America. But if you've been to other countries, especially South American countries, um, a bribe is a way to get things done. It's just kind of an accepted thing. It's how you get things done. You're in the immigration office, and you need your paper stamped, and the room is absolutely, it's not even people, it's an amoeba. It's just this, body, this mass of bodies pressed in there. And if you're the dumb American in there, and you don't know how the system works, you are standing there all day long. And you notice people that walk up to the counter, and they wiggle through the crowd, and they and something goes on between those, the guy on this side of the counter and the guy on the other side of the counter, and then their papers are stamped and they leave. And you're going, what was that? <clears throat> this has a whole lot more context for the people of the Bible than, than we do in America today because it's very easy. And in, and in Bible times, in David's time, it was easy when you're sitting in the gate of the city to have someone nonchalantly walk up to you and say, hey, can you make sure that this gets done? I'll make sure that you get this. It was easily done. We don't do that. I mean, we do it in different ways, is what I should say. It's not that we don't do this today. We do. It's just that in this context, it was easier to do, perhaps. And especially against the innocent. The innocent person, because you're taking advantage of the innocent person. And so David ends this psalm by saying, the one who does these things will never be shaken. Never be shaken. And that's a pretty um, bold statement. And that certainly sounds like a younger, courageous David making that statement. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Because probably when David wrote this psalm, he's been through a lot. He's probably, he probably wrote this after he's been chased by Saul. After he's run all over the country trying to stay alive. After he's been promised the kingship of this country, the sitting king is trying to kill him. And he's off amongst the Philistines, and he's off over here, and he's off over there. But he boldly and confidently says, the one who does these things will never be shaken. And he's right, because if we can practice these things, we as an individual will never be shaken, but more than that, our faith will never be shaken. And the reason is, is because in order to do all those things and to dwell on that hill, we are in close communion 
with the, our Heavenly Father. And we won't be shaken, no matter what happens. So David knows whereof he's speaking here, because he's had a lot of stuff thrown at him. But after David having written that, and how men, and, and when I look back at stuff that I wrote when I was younger, boy, I was full of vim and vigor, and I had the world figured out, and, and I thought that certainly the track that I was on, that when I was the age I am now, I would be here. Well, I'm here, and actually the track I'm on is over here, because that's life. But the exuberance of youth... And there's nothing wrong with the exuberance of youth. It's just that it usually needs to be refined and channeled, that exuberance of youth. Because this is what happens to David. When David, when everything is going well for David, and David is just cleaning up on his enemies, and everybody in the area is afraid of him. He decides not to go out to battle with the men. And he decides to stay home. He'd been better off to be inside playing video games. Because on this particular evening, David goes out and he sees this woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And he asks, who is that? And they tell him, well, that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this is actually the first time we're introduced to Uriah the Hittite. So we could kind of think that David really didn't know who Uriah the Hittite was. But guess what? David knew exactly who Uriah the Hittite was. He wasn't just some stranger. Turns out that Uriah the Hittite is a brother in arms. And it doesn't seem to bother David here. Well, let me go back. It doesn't seem to bother David here that he commits this sin with Bathsheba. And then thinking that that's all there is to it, he sends her away. But shortly, not long thereafter, he gets a message from Bathsheba. Hey, guess what? The proverbial chickens have come home to roost. I am with child. Oh, man, ooh, David's got it. Okay, a little indiscretion is now a problem. Hmm. What was that you wrote in Psalm 15, David? But David, being the cunning person that he was, he said, I can fix this. And he tells his commander, he says, Joab, get me Uriah the Hittite. Bring him, bring him here. And David embarks on trying to con and trick and cajole Uriah into going home to be with his wife. David called Uriah from active duty and brought him to the palace, wined and dined him, and then said, hey, go home, be with your wife, you're on leave. And what did Uriah do? Uriah was having none of it because Uriah was a committed loyal brother in arms. He slept on the steps of the palace. The next morning, David says, hey, did Uriah go home? No. He slept on the... What? Bring him in here. Uriah, what's going on? Well, 
Uriah says, look, my fellow brother in arms are sleeping in the dirt, fighting a battle, and you think I'm going to go home and be with my wife? Uh-uh. As if to say, I live by a different code. I live by a code of the brother in arms. David tries again, tries to get him inebriated and send him home, and it doesn't work. He's too loyal. He's too good of a soldier. Now, you would think that maybe David would start to go, man, this is not right. But David is focused on only one thing. It's covering up his folly. So now, David becomes not just tricky. David becomes treacherous. It's treachery now that David engages in. Because he gets Joab and he tells Joab, he says, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take Uriah and I want you to put him. Actually, I want you to design a mission for him that is like a suicide mission and I want him to run point and I want you to have him run that mission and once he's in the thick of it, you pull back all support. That's what David was telling him. That's what David was telling Joab. And Joab, being the loyal, never asked questions, always taking care of David, always covering up, cleaning up David's messes, Joab just didn't ask questions, said, okay. So Uriah, the faithful, loyal soldier, goes back out to battle. He's given this mission. He goes out there. He's probably thinking, man, if God doesn't save me, I'm done because this is, a, this is a crazy, this is the most dangerous part of this battle. The battle's pitched the hottest right here. And he's fighting for all he's worth, and then all of a sudden he realizes that he's completely alone. Everybody else is gone. You know, Hollywood can't even write decent scripts like this that would pitch this like this. Imagine that you're standing somehow. You're, let's say you're Uriah's loyal friend or shield bearer or something. And you're there with him. And he fights to the bloody end, giving every last ounce of everything he's got to fight for his commander-in-chief. Because he has no clue that his commander-in-chief has done a very rotten thing. But he dies a, a, a brave, valiant, good soldier. That's sad. That, that's like, that makes me want to cry. That's just like, wow. That's devastating. Joab sends a messenger to David to tell him that the deed is done, that Uriah's died in battle. And David tells the messenger, he says, this is what you shall say to Joab. This, this is the message I want you to take back. You tell him this. Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. So go ahead and fight with determination against the city and overthrow it, and thereby encourage him, meaning David. The sword devours one as well as another. Was David speaking truth to his own heart? Not by a long shot. That is about as devious and dishonest as you can get with yourself or anybody around you. The sword devours one as well as another. 
Yeah, especially, David, when you planned it. Do you see how far David had fallen? It's sad. And it's not like it's just David. It's like this. any of us are capable of this. But of course, the Lord's rebuke. David kind of thinks he's gotten away with it for a little while. But then the Lord's rebuke is, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And you've got to wonder whether the Lord is thinking, David, don't you remember what you wrote in that psalm? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight, the Lord's sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword. Not even your own sword. He wasn't, you didn't even kill him like a faithful friend face to face. You used the swords of your enemies to kill him. Like, that's like even worse. And so the Lord's judgment was, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. That's, that's shameful. That's a shame. Your own friend shaming you. What did David write about not shaming your friends? Someone in his own family is going to shame him. Extreme shame. In that culture, that was extreme shame. And that is exactly, exactly what happens. And how many Christians... I just read an article from, uh, it was talking about Brian Houston from Hillsong, and he's, this last year he said he's back and he's going to do all this stuff and everything. And oddly enough, it jumped out of the page at me, he referenced David's folly to talk about his own folly and why he had fallen into sexual sin. And I said, dude, you're not a very good reader of Scripture. Because once David did that, the rest of his life is a sad, sad commentary. If you read the rest of Samuel, it's sad. His household, it's worse than a Hollywood movie. It's sad. If you go to 2 Samuel 23, and David's final psalm that he writes... It's actually, if you read it, it's a sad psalm. It's a sad psalm and sad commentary on David's life because David doesn't really say anything in here that magnifies the Lord. Not like the psalms he's written in the past. It's kind of a sad epitaph, but when we get to it, we get to the further into the, after those last words of David, and we get to, 2 Samuel 23, 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And it goes back and it lists. There's three incredibly courageous men, really interesting guys. And then it names all these other 30-some brave men that David surrounded himself with as he was being chased by Saul and as he rose to, to take his kingship and take over the rule of, of Judah and Israel. These were his brother in arms. These were his unit. Mighty men. 
And you get to the last verse down there in verse 39, and you read that of all those listed, Uriah the Hittite was one of them. So though there's not much that we read in Scripture about Uriah the Hittite, he is listed in these 30 very special elite Israeli tactical dudes. that were so brave that they would lay down their life for their leader, David. And in many, many, many instances, put their self in harm's way for David. But it's fitting that the last person listed here is Uriah the Hittite. So David, David had his issues, he had his problems, he had his test, and he failed it. And it's an example for us. But we have to remember that we have something that the Old Testament saints didn't have. We have help. We have help. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. Jesus again, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you all that I've said to you. And then Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I leave. Jesus is saying, I need to leave. Because if I don't leave, then the helper won't be able to come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. One very specific thing and point that I want to make here is that the law was not a helper for the people, for God's people. It was a taskmaster to point them to Christ, the law was, but it was not a helper. You see, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you'll bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And this verse right here has done more damage to young people by overzealous individuals teaching seminars that this is what we're supposed to do with our children. Let me tell you, as someone who worked with young people This will only create a legalistic child who, as soon as he's gone out of the house, turns his back on God because it was legalistic. Because guess what? God told his people that they would need to do this because they didn't have the help of the Spirit. It had to be ingrained in them to the point that it became a culture. That's the only way that God was going to get that response. And even at that, their hearts were far from him. The real task that we have with our young people is to teach them that the hard work of living out the gospel of Jesus Christ before a watching world is not some scriptural pipe dream, not some ethereal thing, not something that we just kind of talk about on Sunday morning, but it's doable because we have help from the helper. And we don't teach that to our kids young enough. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. You'll never succeed if it's all rules and regulations. It's like being given a monumental task and you're told that you have to have it done by the end of the day. 
And you're thinking, how on earth am I going to do that? Well, you're not, because you need a helper. And so we have a helper. How many times have you needed a helper? Have you ever been in a situation where you heard someone calling for help? Have you? It's pretty, one time I was, and it was, it was, it was scary. That person that was crying for help was in need of help. And it was like, this other guy and I, we weren't even sure that we could help him. It was a very dangerous situation. It involved a car over the waterfalls and water and boulders and raging water. And it was like, and we thought, she's doomed. But we have to help her. I thought we were going to do body recovery down the river, but we didn't. Here she comes hobbling out of the river. It was amazing. But that feeling of rushing to someone's aid to help them, though I had no clue what I was going to do, I get that picture that the Holy Spirit is a helper. When I'm freaked out and I'm panicking and I'm going, how am I going to do this? Oh, wait, I have a helper. If I will let him help me, I have a helper. So the new, it's a new year, but it's the same old admonition from Galatians 5.25. With the help of the helper, this is what we need to do. If we have our life in the Spirit, because we do, we have new life in Christ because of our life in the Spirit, then let's follow the Spirit as well. Or let's walk according to the Spirit. And let's not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. In other words... This year is no different than any other year. We should be walking in the Spirit and doing exactly what God told his people to do in Leviticus, exactly what David put together in Psalm 15, that synopsis of that, and what Paul admonishes us to do in Ephesians. And then in Galatians here. You do that by walking in the Spirit. But this year, you parents that have children, help them this year to understand who the helper is and how that helper helps us live this life. Because believe me, to live like a little Christ, like a Christian, is a monumental task and cannot be done properly without the help of the Holy Spirit. Period. So let's help our young people to understand that. It's not just some ethereal thing that we talk about. We are able to accomplish this task, and we are able to share the gospel and, and save and gather as many together as possible to save them from the clutches of hell by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and what we do. And so that's our admonition for the new year. It's the same one it's still in Scripture. God's not adding scripture verses to scripture for something new every year. It's the same. We just have to be more diligent.